I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Studio Ghibli Collection. Part 4. Only Yesterday. Porco Rosso. Ocean Waves. Pompoco. And Whisper of the Heart. You wouldn't even meet that guy. 27 is too old to be picky. Oh, thanks a lot. When my sisters recall the good old days, it's mainly about fashions or pop stars. For them, 1966 was the high point of their youth. But for me, it was just fifth grade. You can't be serious! Mother! You can't trust boys, even if you have a crush on them. Huh? Oh, look! The crows are flying away! Could you ever see yourself living in a place like this? Tycho! Hey, farm girl! Perhaps my fifth grade self is trying to tell me to find a new way to fly. Only Yesterday is the next one. This is a different direction for Ghibli. It's Takahata again from uh, Grave of the Fireflies guy. And it deals with one lady named Teiko uh, at age 10 and age 27. And at age 10, she's got one set of problems, including the onset of her first period, which most films won't touch. It took until Turning Red for the mainstream to go, we don't want to know about this. Oh, one film they made about that. There's been like six Joker films in the past decade. Very telling. It's something that affects 51% of the planet and the other 49% have to deal with it. Sorry. <laughs> Anyway, no, the other 49% have to be receptive to it and maybe not be such a... Just the boys in this movie are pieces of shit. Accurate. Okay, so Taiko at 10 has to deal with a very distant patrician father who's kind of like, I will read my paper. And then, you know, she, she's like... <laughs> she leaves a little bit of pineapple and is like... You have shamed me. And it's... <laughs> the fact that his only real emotional engagement with this child is to slap yeah. her at one point She's like, is, is horrible. What, what was the re crime that he smacks her around I, for? They, they, I can't even it's remember. Like, I think she ran outside with no shoes on or something like or that. Or, like, you know, she's like, oh, I, my sister was going to give me her bag, but now she said she doesn't want the bag and I want the bag. And eh, Get me a bag. And eventually this particular uh, thing breaks down over a number of scenes into, I'm just going to smack you upside the face. And her family are fucking horrible, frankly. I just, like, they're so passive aggressive. I'm like, get away from these rotten people. It seems very apparent fairly quickly that she does not, she doesn't fit with her family. That's not fair. She does maintain a, at least a tolerant and 
friendly relationship with them into her adulthood, but living with them is not conducive to her feeling at home in herself. They get to eat pineapple, and it's like the first time she's ever eaten pineapple. She's like, oh, it's so good. And other people are like, meh, it's all right. And she's like, yeah, you're right, it's all right. It's, it's, it's like being surrounded by tepid water. And I'm like, I cannot wait for her to get away from this. Can we stop having flashback scenes now, please? But her older self is really boring. So we got to slog through this movie where she... It's a, it's a lifetime movie! She's a city girl. She goes back to the countryside. And she, go, she meets a cute boy. And she realises city life is not for her. And she should be in the countryside because agriculture is the most important thing. I said I promised to Mackenzie, who loves this film, I was going to be kind. Oh, I'm sorry, Mackenzie. I know you love it. I know. <sighs> it's not for you. It's Being fine. lectured about farming by a boring dude. There are a lot of... It just movies. goes on and on and on. Oh, God, it's so boring, this film. There are film. a lot of Ghibli movies. All of them are somebody's favourite, with the possible exception of My Neighbour, the Imatas. Um, but... The Ocean Waves is nobody's favourite. There'll be someone. No one. There'll be someone. No one! <laughs> Even Takahata's mum doesn't like My Neighbour's, the Imatas. <laughs> Oh dear. So yeah, ultimately it's <coughs> she come. I mean, I, I've just said it. I've just said the the, the plot is it's it's a lifetime it is, movie. It's very gentle, like her. That's the thing. She has this this personality that is incredibly subtle and delicate and does not deserve to be surrounded by her yowling sisters mm. and distant pointless father yeah. and bitter resentful mother and honestly I wish she just exploded like the girl in licorice pizza like you <laughs> think her you're thinking all the time but she doesn't she just takes it, it on the chin she the whole does time. but but the fact that we then get to see that she did find a lifestyle that suited her the the triumph of the movie is that there is a moment when she is about because she's only gone on holiday initially the moment when she is about to give up this this lifestyle that she has been experiencing and knows she gets a lot out of and means a lot to her and is about to go home and then she realizes no i this is where i should be you want to talk about like uh, don't turn off during the beginning of the credits well yeah absolutely most of this takes place post credits but the 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 moment where she has a a, a sort of a a mental communion with her younger self yeah. and that this choice is made is it getting to you? Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> See, Mackenzie, one of us likes it. No, no, no. The film as a whole is is very slight. Sorry, she hates it. And <laughs> did, did, there's not... It, it, this time of watching it, just that... You did cry. I did. <laughs> okay, what was it? It's okay. It's okay to like a bad movie. <laughs> It's, it's not, not a bad, bad movie. movie. It's not a bad movie. It's, it's just not for me. It's the fact I'm that... I'm a town mouse. No, I'm not, actually. I like the countryside. I just don't like no, no, this no, no, countryside. No, 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 you don't. You like the idea of the countryside, <laughs> then you get, you get there and you realise there's a bus every three hours and it smells. Yeah, living in it's not so great. Walking in it's fantastic. <laughs> as long as you can get out of it quickly. 
Um, no, it's the fact that she makes this choice because she knows that's what her younger self would want. Yeah. That's what got to me. And it's a very happy ending, even though she is throwing herself into this lifestyle where, like, her landlady is effectively assuming that she's going to marry her son. Yeah. She's like, oh, do you like it? And there's, there's this really long conversation where she's like, so, do you like the city? It's all right. So, do you want to come here and, and get married to this boy? Wait, whoa, 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 that escalated fast. It just reminds me of, and this is really left field in terms of... You should kidding. marry him and then have a grandchild. <laughs> it reminded me of the bit in the ref when Rose is talking about the fact that her marriage was arranged and that her family... <laughs> And the boy's family had pig farms that Pigs. wanted to join together. And that's why they got married. And it just kind of made me feel like, is that what's happening here? He had turnips. <laughs> she had pigs. It was a logical match. Then the pigs ate the turnips. <laughs> and then they went crazy because it was Princess Mononoke. <laughs> uh, oh, the things I can do to liven up only yesterday. <laughs> Yeah. It is it is very very sweet and the the essence of what underpins the story in which not very much happens mm. I think is is the point and if that's what speaks to somebody mm. that's why this will end up being one of them. Ultimately I applaud it because by the end she doesn't just do what other people tell her to do. She yeah. does make that decision on her own. Yeah. She decides, no, I'm just going to go back to the city. That's what I want to do and then she decides, no, actually that's not what not what I want to do. It's it's the thing you've seen in every Lifetime movie. If you've never seen a Lifetime movie, by the way, see one. Then you'll have seen them. <laughs> like I said, the fact that this is a rare film that, that just, it's, it, it kind of, it sympathizes with girls in school while boys are being fucking burks as well. Frankly, I found the, uh, uh, her as a kid more engaging because it felt like she was more aware that she was at odds with her surroundings yeah. there. Yeah, I, that would strike me as being the part that you would sympathise more yeah. with. Okay. Mr. Rosso, we've got a job for you. We need you to protect one of our ships that's carrying up schoolgirls on board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm on it. Mama, you look gang. I'm taking the girls and the girls. Got to do something about that stupid pig. Curtis is the only pilot who can beat Coco. What? Hey, I'm off to Milan to fix my plane. The Italians have a warrant out for your arrest. You plan on taking all of my money? Quit whining. These days, money's barely worth the paper it's printed on. Why don't you come back to the Air Force? Thanks for the offer, but I'd rather be a pig than a fascist. Then you better keep your plane out of the skies. Come on, baby! Farewell to freedom in the Adriatic and to days of wild abandon. What is that, Shakespeare? No, it's Porco. Porco Rosso. This 
was a first time for me. I think I'd seen bits of this before, but I had definitely never sat down and watched it completely. And I hadn't seen and understood and appreciated the wonderful film Casablanca, which I think I was really harsh on in uh, the Crazy Rich Asians episode. Was it that, that or... I think it was The Warriors? I was like, we saw Casablanca and Crazy Rich Asians on the same day, and Crazy Rich Asians is a better film. I stand by that. But... Casablanca is a fucking masterpiece of a movie. <clears throat> and That speaks very highly of Crazy Rich Asians, then. Absolutely. John M. <laughs> Chu. Um, <coughs> actually, I'm seeing Casablanca on Tuesday. I've booked my ticket. It's oh, a silver cool. screen cinema thing. There's going to be a bunch of old people who are like, what are you doing here? Get tea and biscuits at those. Oh, cool. <laughs> For my digestive. That's brilliant. And... PG tips. And you know what? Yep. Oh, actually, no. I was going to say it's less likely to have people on their phones, but you will have old people yakking. Oh, look at him. He's dead, you know. Of course he's dead. This film was made 98 years ago. <laughs> anyway. Porco Rosso is a film about why being a pig is better than being a fascist. Uh, the We still haven't seen the Michael Keaton and Susan Egan one, uh, the uh, American dub. Uh, Willow has. Willow has. But we were really trying to just stick to... It, this one was tough because we were like, oh, what's that version? Just to hear Susan Egan sing, if nothing else. That's Megara from Hercules, folks. And she also played Belle in the uh, stage version of Beauty and the Beast. She did. <clears throat> so... We start with some pirates who steal a bunch of little girls, and the little girls are like having a whale of a time on this battered old air pirate uh, frigate thing. And they're just, they're having an adventure. They get rescued by the pig, and he's just sort, sort of trying to like put them in the, back in their right place and stop them from uh, going ballistic. And it's a, it's a really great way of getting kid, little kids to like this film because you've got this gruff pig pilot. They're actually, the, the, the antagonists in this film are um, largely unseen Italian fascists, right? And uh, he's, they're, they're operating out of a, a, an island that's kind of a Casablanca and there's a, an unfulfilled romance between him and uh, the leading lady who is a chanteuse. There's a bit of mafia stuff going on as well, like the idea that the only people who do well out of war are the organised criminals who clean up all the money afterwards. Oh, so The Last Jedi. <clears throat> yes. Yes. Which also has overtones of Casablanca. It does. In that middle section that everybody seems to hate. Which is the thematic spine of the movie. Anyway. <clears throat> yep. Poco Rosso, or Marco Paggio, used to be a human pilot. There's a really telling shot of a, of a photograph of him and his uh, war buddies and he's scribbled out his face because that man is now to him gone and he's been turned into a pig by did did we ever see why or how um, did he meet Circe no well <clears throat> it's not made 100% clear what the mechanics of him becoming a pig are but there is an event when he and his squadron buddies mm. are going out together mm. and something happens whereby they are all killed except him right and when he come they they all fly up through the clouds this is the centerpiece of the movie absolutely is uh, they fly up through the clouds and he sees that stream of planes this will come back throughout the uh, ghibli films yeah 
and his... I think you're selling it short. It is an absolutely ethereal moment. It, it, this is why Porco Rosso got really high on my list on my first viewing. It's, it's, it's based on the Roald Dahl uh, short story, They Shall Not Grow Old, and it's about dead pilots. And it's something that hangs in Hayao Miyazaki's head. He resented his father, who, like I said before, made engines of war, but at the same time he was fascinated with the engines and he couldn't not think of all the pilots of all these planes who fly up into the sky and by and large during the, that period didn't come didn't have that great a chance of coming down alive yeah. so when marco's up there above the clouds in this beautiful azure sky this stream of ghost planes flying over him to a far green country Much like Contact, another one of those moments that defies words. And part of Marco actually wants to join them. He tries, he specifically tries to trade places with his friend who has recently married Gina, the, the woman that Marco is obviously also somewhat enamoured of. Hmm. But at this point, the friend can't hear him and, and so will not waver from his path upwards. And Marco comes back down through the clouds and we see when he re-emerges from underneath the clouds that he is now a pig. Which almost feels like he has taken his life for granted and thus his punishment is to be trapped in a porcine frame. Yes, it's, it's, I think, it's symbolic of survivor's guilt. Yeah. Oh, I honestly, I feel like I'd need to watch this film repeatedly to really get to plumb the depths of it. It has texture to it. There's a, a kind of a antagonism between him and Carrie Elwes, who is the aforementioned potato-headed man uh, with the little ratty moustache who acts like the film is about him, but it's not. Donald Curtis. Marco Porco is is the Rick figure from Casablanca, kind of just bumming around this island, trying to do what he considers to be uh, good in a kind of a gruff, I'm not going to commit to this, this doesn't necessarily define who I am, even though it absolutely does. And way. also specifically good in a low-key way that will not get him slammed down upon and prevent him from doing more good. Yeah. And there's a song in this... Oh, fucking hell. <clears throat> and there is a sweet, nostalgic French song in this called The Time of Cherries, which is a lament for the hardship of living through times where the tone is set by fascists and looking back on uh, the, when things were easier, which feels relevant. And again, you have Miyazaki's absolute love 
of aviation. And I think this one of all of them, this is one of the last that I saw for the first time. In fact, it might be the last that I saw for the first time. Uh, but although I eagerly await his, uh, the 24th Ghibli film, How Do You Live? by Hayao Miyazaki being released later this year. Um, the sense of soaring, I know that there's a whole, yeah, <laughs> immediately my brain went to Kiki's Delivery Service with that song. This, in Kiki's Delivery Service, the camera is watching Kiki, and especially within the city, she bounces between roofs, kind of like a Spider-Man with a stationary camera, and occasionally we whiz around with her. But with Porco Rosso, the camera sweeps with an actual genuine momentum, and it feels like we're in one plane observing another plane. I was just going to say, it's not that we're gracefully. It's not that we're with the plane of the protagonist. It's almost like we're a reporter following them and watching mm. them, but close enough to keep pace, but still slightly detached. In cinematic terms, it's very similar to that stunt in uh, Captain America: Civil War, where Bucky jumps out of a window all the way down to a rooftop far below, and to achieve the shot. The cameraman jumped out behind the stuntman. It's absurd, but it's amazing. And that's how the aerial, not even really battles, it's almost more like dances uh, that, that take place. In, it is an, uh, an aeronautical ballet to watch. It doesn't have the savagery of dogfight, explosion, people dead. Or dogfight, explosion, plane exploded but luckily pilots on parachutes so you get the destruction without the cost of life in things like G.I. Joe. The whole thing is is transfused with melancholy and Marco ends up as sort of an avuncular figure to a young mechanic uh, called Fio who kind of gives him purpose. She, she sort of puts him to the test in terms of, okay, so what sort of person are you actually? Because this, again, like with May, this young person's looking up to you in terms of what, you know, how do I be? She already has her own direction. Are you gonna stand in the way or are you going to let her uh, carve her own way? And it's, the origins of the movie itself were going to be a promotional short for a Japanese airline and uh, Hayao described it as, this is not a movie for kids. It is. This is not a movie for kids. It's for uh, middle-aged men whose brains have turned to tofu. Which I think was him kind of being uh, self-deprecating in, in that scenario, rather than admonishing you know, Japanese businessmen <laughs> having to uh, take short-haul flights around the country. It approaches the world I suppose for, like, the, the word avuncular keeps coming back because we're seeing it through uh, Marco's eyes. It's kind of got that, meh, doesn't matter to me, but it clearly does. And then there's all of these enthusiastic, energetic young people racing around the place. And he's like, oh, this is too fast for me. But at the same time, he's the one who can fly through the air with the greatest of ease. It's there's this, this sense that the world has exhausted him but he wants to put the shine back on it for the young people who are coming after him. Yeah. Which is a noble goal. And I applaud uh, Hayao at this point for considering the tone of the film. He could have ended it abruptly like My Neighbor Totoro and Kiki's Delivery Service with, and then Marco got together with Gina and they lived happily ever after. But it ends 
as the films that inspired it and the tone that it's held throughout would entail, with a note of questioning and melancholy and paths not taken. Yeah. I, I think what actually happens is Theo and Gina end up going off together and going into business together, mm. at least for a, a period of time. Although yeah. I don't think that lasts forever and Gina goes off and does something different. But there is very much a nothing lasts forever and we're just going to the next yeah. phase in that, our lives. But not actually, necessarily together. Yeah, I was actually going to say that's what this sort of little epilogue over the credits sequence kind of gives you a sense of with these films. That the end, as we perceive a story, is not the end of that person's life their mm. their existence will carry on and yeah all right we'll see a little snippet of it but then when the credits are finished more will happen that we don't know about and aren't party to yeah because it gives a real sense of it, it contributes to the world building because it makes it feel real but it also makes the world feel kinder because yeah. it doesn't have these great big stop moments. In it's it. a full, it's a full stop, but not a hard full stop, mm. and it's not a the end, yeah. which doesn't necessarily have to entail sequel. Because Ghibli don't make films to make money; they make art mm. until someone lives. Ocean waves. Nobody's favorite Ghibli. I can see why they did this as a studio. Effectively, the elders of Ghibli had been working for many, many years before they even founded the studio in 1986 with Castle in the Sky's first release. By this point, it was 1993, and they were thinking about the young. They were like, what, what do young people like? I suppose, high school? And uh, <laughs> rather than going, how do you do, fellow kids? They were like, let's, let's let our younger animators make something uh, for younger people, but slightly older than the children we've been appealing to and the, and the fans of fantasy and, 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 and wartime hardship. Effectively, it's a teen drama. In the same way that uh, uh, Only Yesterday is a Lifetime movie, uh, this is a high school drama about a boy who likes a girl, but the girl is cruel and will not have him. It's also notable that this was not actually designed to be theatrically released. It was a, a TV animation on a smaller scale with a lower budget. So it's classified as a television drama directed by Masahiro Nakano, so it's an adaptation of a serial novel written by Seiko Himura and illustrated for what it's worth by Katsuya Kondo. Uh, and it was, this one was directed by Tomomi Mokizuki. So okay. the plot, Sharon, please furnish us. The plot runs thus. So in Kochi, Taku Morisaka receives a call from his friend Yutaka Matsuno asking to meet at their high school. He finds Yutaka with an attractive female transfer student. An attractive female? Rikako Muto, whom Yutaka was asked to show around. Rikako is academically gifted and good at sports, but also arrogant. Taku believes she is unhappy about leaving Tokyo. So they live in a, a place that is relatively like suburban stroke rural it's not big city she's had to move there from Tokyo yeah. uh, on a school trip to so she's Hawaii, like this place smells like egg I don't like it here but in Japanese uh, on a school trip to Hawaii Rik uh, Rikako asks Taku oh, no, sorry, sorry. on a school trip 
to Hawaii, you pampered little rich kids. I will say though, that skips over a sizable chunk of the characterization portion of the movie. There's characterization? There's a little bit, yeah. So the, wow. originally the, the year group that um, uh, Taku is in were promised a school trip to Kyoto. You might be able to go to Kyoto, but you're gonna have to settle for Hawaii. Which they've had- Fuck you! Because their grades are not considered to be good enough, so they have the rug pulled out from underneath them and are told that they're not allowed to go on this trip. And uh, No trip to Kyoto! And one of his friends are, they, they basically say, look, if you have a problem with this, come to detention, but your detention will be writing as an essay about why you think this is unfair. That's some Bullshit! I'm much more interested in them fighting the school over this. Two of them turn up, right. Taku and, and this other friend, and they actually end up between them, I think, writing an essay. You know, you get three more they, Japanese kids in there, make the whole thing a bottle episode. Absolutely. They still they still don't end up going to Kyoto, but what they're told is instead, in your senior year, if you pull your socks up, we'll take you to Hawaii instead. <sighs> so that's how they end up in Hawaii. But you're absolutely right, there's a chunk there about school rebellion that just gets hop skipped and jumped over which would have been much more interesting than what actually it happens. Would have. Uh, so on a school on the school trip to Hawaii Rikako asks Taku to lend her some money as she has lost her own. As Taku has a part-time job he lends her 60,000 yen. Oh, that's Promise about 8 quid. <laughs> Hang on, let's just just, just check. What's what's sixty thousand yen? I, yeah, I think they said it was about four hundred dollars or something. We're gonna go with U.S. dollars, and obviously this is adjusted for inflation. Four hundred, yeah, four hundred fifty-four dollars. Yeah. So it would have been a little bit less back in those days, but still, about you. It's 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 train ticket, plane ticket, long journey money. Yeah, uh, promising to repay him, she warns him not to tell anyone. Back in Kochi, the third year begins with Rikako making a friend, Yumi Kohama. Rikako is not. <laughs> okay, there's listeners going, who's your train guy? How much are you being charged? <laughs> I mean, like, full cross-continental trains. Uh, Rikako has not returned Taku's money, and he wonders if she has forgotten. Out oh, of blue, fucking hell. a distressed Yumi calls Taku, explaining that Rikako had tricked her into coming to the airport on the pretense of a concert trip, only to discover that their real destination is Tokyo, tickets paid for with Taku's money. He races to the airport. So basically, she has borrowed the money from him and then used it to pay to get home because she hates living in this stinky suburb of Tokyo. Indeed. Uh, Rikako's father... Which is, which would be fine if she was somebody who was like, I just, I can't fit in here. But, but she is... Okay. Uh, she doesn't care about anyone but herself. Here's That's what, the point. Here's what my issue is with this part. Because this story is told through Taku's eyes... Uh, and if she'd been honest with him as yeah. well. All right, but here's another here's another option. We could have been with her, uh -huh. doing all this stuff, mm -hmm. being horrified by being shipped out to Kochi. Yep. For reasons, it's something to do with her parents. So the little girl out of uh, Inside Out. Yes, yeah. But instead, what we're getting is the people around her being baffled by her behaviour, which is all shitty and ratty and behind people's backs and sneaky and and unpleasant. Do you know what it reminds me of, folks? The episode of The Simpsons that Meryl Streep was in, where she plays a little girl that's like Reverend Lovejoy's daughter, who's kind of a hellraiser, but she's like a goody two-shoes, so like no one ever suspects her of, you're a bad Bart Simpson. She's that. Mm. Season six, episode seven, Bart's Girlfriend. I've never felt this way about a girl before. My long search is finally over. 
so hard on yourself, Bart. It's not your fault Jessica doesn't like you. Is it my hair? My overbite? The fact that I've worn the same clothes day in, day out for the last four years? No, Bart. I just think you and Jessica are too different from each other to get along. She's a sweet, kind, reverend's daughter, and you're the devil's cabana boy. Hmm. You're bad, Bart Simpson. No, I'm not. I'm really... Yes, you are. You're bad. And I like it. I'm bad to the bone, honey. Let's go find some fun. But your father said... Oh, I told the Rev. I was going to my room to say my prayers. Smart, beautiful, and a liar. You gotta give her up. No, no, wait. Hear my plan. Put up with her for seven more years. Then we'll get married. Once the first baby comes along, she's bound to settle down and start treating me right. After all, I deserve it. Bart, it's naive to think you can change a person. Except maybe that boy who works in the library. Do you have Go Dog Go? That's in juvenile. This is young adult. Well read and just a little wild. Ooh, if only someone could tame him. You're right, Lisa. Love isn't about fixing someone. I'm just going to give her up cold turkey. I'm not going to talk to her or see her. It's over. Thanks for the advice, sis. Eventually, Jessica gets rumbled for the stealing of the collection plate, which gets blamed initially on Bart, and that her punishment is to scrub the front steps of her father's church, a task she gives to Bart. And the camera pans out and he's laughing to himself because he's going to do a shoddy job on those steps, thinking he's somehow gotten one over on her. The look on her face. Ha ha ha. And then the camera pans out as Bart's laughing to himself that he's got one over on this girl he's effectively painting the fence for. That's this whole film. Except without the character or fun. Can we stop? Sure. Can we, like, that's it. That's all. Like, you sit and watch it and go, that was Studio Ghibli? Because there's been so many kind of humdrum, tumty-tum, fucking high school drama animes made ever a lot of them in more the uh, 2000s as, as things tended towards away from the fantastical let's make things that are a little more domestic and appeal to the younger it, you know no more magic robots and magic powers these are all situations that you get into of course the vision of Escaflone is sort of situations for a high school girl that you and I would get into but also completely off the wall and swarming with magic robots <laughs> indeed but here the, the Simpsons parallels the, continue just just as a capper the closing line of the way the plot is described on Wikipedia is Taku this is years later they meet up again Taku smiles as he realises he'd always been in love with her dude I could have told you that when you gave her $400 like he should look at her and go oh my god I'm so much older than you like, by, by this point, like, emotionally speaking, like, if he meets her again and she's still the same selfish person, mm -hmm. then he go, gets an epiphany and goes, wow, I spent so much of my time pining for you. I'm, I'm okay. Allison married Kevin! I am fine now! But it's not that story. He, no. like, he's like, oh, I really do love you. Why? What's to love? That's an infatuation. That ain't love, you 
fool. Yeah, so the essence and we've all of been the there, story folks. appears to be, and it could be that we are wildly misinterpreting this and that there is some underlying subtlety that we are missing completely, but the way it seemed to come across was young love is all about letting some girl you barely know Walk wipe her you. feet all over you. Oh my God! <laughs> and yeah. old love is about that too. <laughs> Better movie. See, it's funny because marriage is terrible. Well, no, I was just thinking years later, somebody, one of these two is paying someone else money to reenact the other half of this exchange. Nice. But here's the point. <laughs> you know what I just said? We've all been there, folks. We've all been there is the thing. The film should be from the point of view of I'm a little older now, I'm a little wiser now, I can see where I was then. Because people can completely relate to that. Mm. If you're, even if you're a teenager, it's sort of going, hey kids, it, it will be okay later on. It may hurt like fuck right now, but it will be okay later on. That's a kind of positive message to send out to young people, especially in a troubled generation. Absolutely. But instead it's like, yeah, she's great, isn't she? Well, this is the right... I don't even like, know what it's saying from, by the end. From a personal... Apart from you pathetic doormat boy. From a relating point of view, like, I've been in the situation where I have... Where, where somebody has been treating me like shit. More than once, I might add. And looking back on those situations, mm. there is a degree of why on earth did I allow that to happen? Yeah. Did I allow it and to happen? And films that alert as you to this did? is toxic as shit are however, really helpful. However, the conclusion, and this could just be me, it might be that other people would see this in a very different way. The conclusion that I came to was not, uh, it was okay because I was in love with them. No, <laughs> it wasn't okay. I might have been in love with them, but that's not the point. It there was does no affect, doesn't affect every other man, and it, it is, is a, a big, big deal. deal. There is more at play than that. I had to do a lot of self-examination to not just walk into a similar situation again. Yeah. Or, or feel like I was walking into a similar situation. So it just feels like a, a half a story that breaks off unsatisfyingly yeah. and concludes nothing. Yeah. It, it's got that, that was it feel, which sometimes affects short animes. Like, if you've ever seen Blood the Last Vampire, uh, if you're in the West, an OVA is, is way shorter than what you would consider to be a movie, but longer than a TV episode. Mm. But it feels like it has the structure of a movie, but it's missing a whole act. And you get to the end of what was like 45 minutes ago, that was it? Pay $9.99 for this DVD. <laughs> Great animation, but my god. It is worth noting before we leave off of Ocean Waves, there has been a more recent reading of it that it is an accidental queer coming out movie. It's all down to a very subtle conversation that the leading lad has with a male friend when looking out to sea. If anyone wants to watch this with that angle, let us know how well Ocean Waves holds up as an accidental queer film. I will let E. Licorice reference this revelation, having actively studied it. We transition back to the older Taku as his plane lands. Outside the airport, a car parks next to him, and it's Yutaka, offering him a ride. On the road, they have a friendly conversation about how different Tokyo is from Kochi. Yutaka tells him that Kyoto, where he's currently studying, is actually quite similar to Kochi. And this conversation goes on for long enough that it's clear the film is trying to tell you that it means something. 
Then, as he drops him off, Yutaka leans over and apologizes for the fact that he punched him back in high school. And by this point, I'll be honest, I had mostly checked out. I'm kind of half paying attention. The film spent the better part of the past hour aimlessly wandering through scenes with uninteresting characters, so now even though my eyes are pointing straight at the screen, my mind is elsewhere. But then as the scene plays out, I start to notice that they're on a pier overlooking a beautiful sunset. And the soundtrack is playing this somewhat romantic synth music. And Yutaka is speaking in this soft confessional tone. Holy shit! He's going to say he always knew that Taku was in love with him. Then all these hints the film had planted start coming back to me, all the little signs of how special their friendship is, moments that even hint that Taku might not be straight. Suddenly my heart's beating a bit too quickly and I'm kind of on the edge of my seat. I wish I had gone in knowing about this reading. If I ever watch the film again, I will of course keep my eyes open for that. Well, I'll try. But you folks can watch it fresh, so let us know. Okay, so next to- oh my god. <laughs> Fucking bollocks. This is what we call the wilderness years. <laughs> the next is our friend Takahata, who did pass on and was very dear uh, to uh, um, Hayao Miyazaki and was very key to Ghibli. Pom Poco. やがて悲しき狸かな Yeah, I say old Takahata died in 2018, not too long after he finished The uh, Tale of the Princess Kaguya, his fifth and final Ghibli film. Uh, but this was his second after Grave of the Fireflies, and it's called Pompoko. And it's all about raccoons, or at least it keeps saying raccoons. They're actually tanukis. Tanukis are a Japanese wood sprite type thing uh, that looks like a raccoon, but are known for their ma they're known for their magic properties, and uh, they have large talons. 
and large other things, and more besides. Uh, you know in Super Mario Bros. 3 when you got the Tanuki suit, which is not the same as the uh, raccoon cap with the tail? It's a full-body onesie that Mario goes in. You can get in it in Mario Kart in various versions. Uh, one of the abilities you had was to turn into a statue. Like when a turtle was walking by, I think you press down or something, and you go putung and turn into a statue, and the turtle continues to walk by without hitting you. So it's like an extra power. Tanukis are known for their powers of deception and mischievousness. Now, for the longest time, I didn't actually sit down and watch this movie because when I first watched it, I was like, what, what is this? And then I rewound and I queued up Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Two Tribes and it, it fits so perfectly with this opening that you don't even need to watch the rest of the film because that's better than everything. It begins with sort of a brief monologue about Tanukis in the forest and two warring clans. And then it's like fucking the sharks and the jets of raccoons who run at each other in this grassy field and then change from realistic-looking raccoons uh, into much more uh, pudgy cartoonish raccoons mm -hmm. wearing samurai gear and then it, it sort of devolves into or evolves into like crazy slapstick fighting where they suddenly have armor and there's a kind of bit of feudal japan stuff going on and they're kind of bonking each other with, on the head some of them are with, dressed as pirates yeah. it's not like the violence of princess mononoke it's no. it's it's all just like pl fun play fighting but it illustrates that they're fighting with each other but the movements and the tempo goes so perfectly with this classic 80s pop song. The air attack warning sounds like this is the sound. love applying this to anything which is I don't know sort, sort of serious in tone like we you used I, it for Twilight I put it on yeah. the uh, yeah the third Twilight film when a bunch of werewolves and vampires fight a bunch of young vampires and again run at each other across a, a field because it lends absurdity to an otherwise it's supposed to be cool fight mm. I notice you've never put it across the battle in um, Helm's Lion, Deep. the Witch in the Wardrobe <laughs> <laughs> see it it doesn't fit with the tempo. Mm, yeah, yeah. The, the line the Witch in the Wardrobe, it is sort of waxes and wanes, this 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 bit of Harry Gregson Williams music going up and soaring down, da 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 So, I will try to get that on YouTube somewhere. In fact, honestly, folks, I am considering opening a Vimeo account 
that is just my combinations of music with films that aren't supposed to have that music, but it works surprisingly well. As in like, just bits, just snippets. Obviously, every time I put one of those on YouTube, I immediately get slammed with, sorry, the Sony Music Group does not like you using this. And sorry, Warner Brothers doesn't like you using this. You know what you could try to begin with is put it up as a private YouTube video and just post the link? I could, but no one's gonna see it. Well, with a Vimeo account, you're gonna have to send people the link to find it. That's true. Either way, yeah. Folks, uh, write in if, if you've uh, worked out a way to stop YouTube from bugging people who are trying to do creativity with remix culture, which is what I love. Anyway, <sighs> Pompoko is it's ecological in nature because it's it strays into the, uh, the, the like one of the repeated Ghibli motifs we've talked about so often, which is the encroachment of mankind into nature and the the violence that ensues as a result yeah. of that. So where, where Act 1 kind of turns is when the Tanukis realise that they are fighting amongst themselves when just over that hill there is a construction group that are about to flatten their park Diggers. and forest. Yeah. So, it's very the animals of farthing wood. Yeah, it is a little bit. Only it's uh, like, let's kill the humans. <laughs> oh, indeed. Let's, let's blow up their diggers. Um, so they coordinate themselves, or one of their, their elders coordinates them into a uh, anti-construction force, I suppose is the best way of describing it. Yeah. So effectively, they're uh, the, the the people that chain themselves to trees to prevent them prevent deforestation. People who are so committed to uh, not allowing the the greed and avarice of mankind to destroy the natural world in its ever consuming nature. Yeah. So then you have this... they want to be the better angels who stand in the way and go no there has to be a point where we actually can stop ourselves. Absolutely. They have to be the thing that keeps us in check. So then you have this section which is apart from some there's lots of noodling. And side note by the way, without the noodling and with the focus this would I would have been totally behind this film. But it would have been a 45 minute OVA. Um Better movie. <laughs> so or it would have been a Canadian TV show called The, the Raccoons, Raccoons which is way better. And has less balls in it. And has Cyril Sneer <laughs> and his son Cedric, who's actually a little bit nice. Yeah, I don't think you really... There, there isn't a... Evil industrialist aardvark? No. The there, pink there dude who, who grins in front of a big stack of gold that Jim Stephanie Sterling often refers to visually. This is the Evergreen Forest. Quiet. Peaceful, serene. That is until Burt Raccoon wakes up. Luckily, he has some good friends to help him out. Life would be simple in the forest, except for Cyril Sneer. And his life would be simple, except for the raccoons. There isn't a big bad guy for you to kind of point your frustration hmm. at. The humans are, they're not exactly faceless, 
but they are a collective yeah. threat rather than it being a case of here's an individual person that we can point at and say if we can topple them yeah. we'll be okay it is not Princess Mononoke and, my no, it's not. goodness like the existence of Princess Mononoke makes this superfluous to requirement mm. Like, there is a so much better version of this story out you, there, you as is Nausicaa. This, you could call this sort of training wheels in the journey from Nausicaa to Mononoke. You could, but Nausicaa and Mononoke are masterpieces. Mm. This is piffle. <laughs> so, as I said, there's noodling, and they are effectively noodling cast piffle. as Tanuki protesters... Uh, refusing to lie down when these construction workers come, they fight. Isn't about lying down what you do when you're in front of the bulldozers? Sometimes, but here's the thing: you have this section where they're fighting back, and it's got kind of this sort of triumph element to it. Mm-hmm. And then you have a really sharp turn, whereby we end up with a big heap of dead raccoons. Oh, they're fucking dead. And dude. The, the tanukis. Tanukis, sorry. And the the fundamental point here is their heart and their determination, notwithstanding. The bottom line is they don't stand a fucking chance against humans with rifles and baseball bats and a conviction that this is their park and they can do what the fuck they like with yeah. it. Which is depressing. Yes. Yes, it is. Though it is obviously trying to teach the children, look after the raccoon's home. Mm. That's, I, yeah, I do think that's what they're aiming towards. However, unfortunately, because... He lacks the deft hand children, of Miyazaki. Well, especially since younger children are going to be with the Tanukis, yeah. not looking at this from a third-party detached position. Yeah. They're takeaway from this is much more likely to be the Gen X standard can't win, don't, don't try. try. But yeah, the, it, it skews very young in a lot of its positioning and then it just hits you hard in a way that would repel little kids. Yeah. And like that would be straight up edited out of uh, TV edits mm. for this which yeah. also removes people, the impact. Some people would say that means that the kids don't get the the underlying message, and I agree. But at the same time, how you deliver that message is important. Yeah, and this is bungled. Another reason it's bungled is that Tanukis have one especially special power. Giant testicles that can shrink and grow and be used for multiple things. I'm not fucking making this up. As these kid-friendly raccoons run at each other, their knackers swell up into beanbag space hopper scrotums and they are bouncing along on these things, throwing them in front of truck windows. They are flinging them out behind them and using them as parachutes! Okay, so this is an extension of the fact that Tanukis are shape changers, and this ties into Yeah, that. but one particular but, shape well, in thing. one particular so part of their body. The, 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 it ties in with what you said about them being known for mischief and deception. The, the few it's Tanukis... like Pinocchio, but his bollocks grew. Bollocchio. Every time he lies, yeah. Um, the the Tanukis that are left over from the massacre, and it is a massacre, yeah. um, kind of go, right, we're fucked now, what are we going to do? Not before they, they say, we must kill the humans. There's at least one Tanuki who's really into the idea of murdering. Well, yeah, but that's kind of where they were going anyway. That's why the humans kind of came back at them. Right. But the... Really, they should just have gone like full on the rabbit out of Holy Grail and just yeah. jumped at their necks and ripped them Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Now I mean, that, that, I'd have I'm been totally down for. Yeah. I'm, I'm fine like if it starts out clearly for kids, but yeah. it's totally not. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh dear. Um, so they. The you know what? The kids would also love it. <laughs> so, so after an, an, a final attempt at lashing out at the humans, which fails, um, the Tanukis that remain go right. All we can do now, if you can't beat them, join them. Let's disguise ourselves as humans and go and live in town. I think it starts as an infiltration attempt. Yeah. But. Half of them end up going, you know what, working in the shop is an awful lot easier than, than fighting the good fight. Let's just carry on being humans. And they get sucked into the the uh, capitalist, industrialist lifestyle. Some of them even Which end you up. could see as leaving your rural home to go yeah. and live in the city. It's going straight back to uh, Only Yesterday by the same guy, yeah. Takahata. You Sorry, I said this is his second, it's his third. You only think yesterday. that it's going to help you to go and, and try and work within the system, but it's actually not. It's just going to suck all of the resistance out of you and you're going to end up buying into it. Again, not a terrible message. The way it's delivered, however, is, is too obscure, I think, to really get it across to its target audience. And I've said in the past that comedy helps the drama really land, mm. but certain comedy doesn't necessarily. It, you have to be careful when that tone is wildly swinging from left yeah. to right. Yeah, uh, Shaun of the Dead doesn't have enormous... Shaun of the Dead never asks you to suddenly turn around and look at all the people who've died and be really, really sad. It's very careful. It keeps it to like just Sean and his mum, and just Sean and Ed, and like keeping it, and, and just Sean and Phil, and, and just sort of making it a, a slow bleed on a personal level, as opposed to okay, let's stop being silly because look at all the carnage and death that's real, and and draw a real world parallel. Like it, it just it, it doesn't it wouldn't fit. But if it it would still fit way better because Sean of the Dead's fucking funny, whereas the giant. Ball sacks are just gross. Okay, I, I mean, I, I get that for him it, it might have been it may have been that that was the height of hilarity, and he thought that that would help convey the message to focus on here's how these tanuki shape change. It's all in the testicles. That is one wacky fucking director. Indeedy. Anyway, so yeah, Pompoko is. <sighs> it does kind of have a happy ending. Not, no, it's bittersweet. Like they, yeah, they, they've, they've yeah. kind of learned the, to live, the but they, they have to accept the encroachment of... Yeah, yeah. They, they have to learn to sort of... They, some of them stay mm. in the city. About three quarters of them go back, but sort of accept that the humans are changing the shape of the, the parks and the forests yeah. and that they will it's just have to keep to the areas that they're allowed, effectively. Okay. Once again, though, the Canadians got it right with the 80s cartoon, The Raccoons, which definitely set Sharon and I on the right track regarding man-made climate change, industrial destruction, and capitalism. Plus, the music at the end absolutely slapped. While we're here, I want to thank our top-tier sponsors at the $15 level on Patreon. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, 
Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Jorn Clawson, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Bay, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. This one, thankfully, is a big step up, and it is Whisper of the Heart. Cremona is a town of the city. It's a city 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 of the city. あ、すまん。ついな。楽しみに待ってますよ。いざ、お友を捕まえるラン。ラクスラズリの攻略を探す旅。いつもの僕さ。会えない。さよなら。好きな人ができました。This was a first for me. I'd never actually watched it before. It was directed by uh, Yoshifumi Kondo. So it has a different feel to a lot of the other Ghiblis. This is my kind of being able to ground it in a, a sort of reality. It's about, again, about a Japanese schoolgirl. Unlike only yesterday, she doesn't have a horrible family and we're only staying with her as a kid. Uh, and unlike Ocean Waves, she's not a dreadful simp for someone who doesn't deserve her attention. It's more about creativity and an acute sense of that sharpness you feel as a teenager where you begin to feel the edges of how fleeting certain parts of your life will be. So our lead girl is named Shizuku and she has created a new song by changing the lyrics of Country Road but in a way that sort of applies to her feelings at this point. And she's trying to work out what she's supposed to be doing. She can feel creativity sort of burning in her. But the way the film positions her, she's not exceptional at what she does, but she is hardworking. And it's more about the rewarding nature of self-expression through that rather than the achievement of being able to make something that everyone will read. It's more like it's a personal journey and <clears throat> that crea creativity is kind of just something you do and a part of your life uh, in a way that makes it more accessible to people who don't 
have the opportunity to just be a Mozart or be a Hendrix or be a Da Vinci. I would also say it's a... Or, or aren't born with the innate talent of that. It's a representation much more of how creativity can be uh, a life-giving and, uh, and healthy thing rather than you got hit by the muse at 14. Mm. Everybody told you you were a fucking wonderkind by the time you were 21. Mm. You were burned out by the time you were 30. And then terrible things happened, which it tends to be sort of the way that we look at uh, those who are creative and become famous and get launched to the top of their profession early on. They get lots and lots of attention. We've seen so many music biopics that do precisely Absolutely. this. They get lots and lots of attention, feel like they can't possibly live up to the expectations that everybody has of them, and it does not end well. Mm. This? Well, it's just not middle well. It might end it okay. Might end. Uh, uh, okay, not ending in total disaster and tragedy is not necessarily the same thing. Well, if you're Bohemian Rhapsody, well. you know, it can end well, but it's not really yeah, there's the more to come. end. Yeah. But that's, the, you know, that's the, the usual story that we are more accustomed to when it comes to mm. here's this person who wants, who has this creative drive. I actually really like the low-key nature of, of this. It, because I'm not a creative in the same way that you're a creative, I, I, there are things I do for creative expression, but I'm not necessarily looking to incorporate that into my career and what I do on That's a good basis. example, yeah. Um, so the, the... It's more like a hobby that you become really good at. Yeah, so to me... Which, by the way, is not in any way disparaging doing that. Oh, if hell it, no. It, this story is about cherishing that feeling, but also the connections that come with that but also how they are fleeting. Yeah, but the, for me, the, the creative things that I do, and this is one of them, doing this podcast is one of them, they, are, they fuel me in order to then put that creative energy into the, the stuff that I would consider to be my living. Mm. And partly things that I don't necessarily get paid for, but they're under the same umbrella, which is the service that I provide to people, whether that's caring for them directly, whether that's uh, supporting them uh, emotionally, or whether that is the literal being on the phone and, and helping people get their everyday business sorted out, which is which is what I do day to day. So it's it, the creativity is the fuel for that. From that's my pipeline. For other people, it's the they have to do other things to fuel the creativity, which is then their way of manifesting in the world and so while it was I didn't connect with that side of it I did find her um, her frustrations at being like this is something that I really want to be good at why can't I be good at it the why can't this thing be perfect the first time out she has a wonderful exchange with a, a, an older guy who she, she gets him to, to read her first attempt at a novel and she's like it's awful it's dreadful I just know it is um, and his responses along the lines of yeah that's brilliant and your next one will be so much better your next your next draft of this will be so much more improved this reminds me of uh, what robert rodriguez said about uh, every filmmaker's got like five terrible films in them get them done soon don't release them but get them done yeah. don't try to be great immediately indeed i saw a really good uh, piece on this exact film from uh, somebody, I can't remember which, because we've watched so many now, uh, talking about how he's irritated by the cultural perception of innate talent, like I mentioned before. 
as opposed to working your raccoon bollocks off to get good to get good at something it takes hours and hours and hours and thousands of hours to of diligence even mozart david helfgott the uh, pianist there's almost a like they were innately talented but they also threw absolutely every moment of their time into this mm. so proportionally speaking they had to still practice. Yeah, yeah. And that whole thing, that's another thing as well. That whole thing about Mozart achieved great things when he was still just a child. Yeah, do you know why? Because that's all he did from sunup to sundown and sometimes in his sleep as well. And it wasn't... That's all he did. His inclination he was forced to by his father, as was David Helfgott from the film Shine, starring Shiny McShine. <laughs> Indeed. But for me, the real appeal for Whisper of the Heart is in the visuals. It's in the when she goes into the world that she's creating and you see what she's writing about playing out in her mind. It's not exactly the scenes that she writes, but it's the world she inhabits while she's writing and, and then communicates that through her words. There's merging into they the fantastical. Use a painterly backdrop which I can only describe as in fact, I, I don't even have a word for it. It's it's hallucinogenic. It's it's impressionistic. You can see that the natural world that Ghibli films are known for, but it's filtered through a fantastical, this is real, but it's not quite real kind of fade. And um, there are scenes which are open to interpretation in terms of exactly what you're looking at, but just the surface level of it is just so beautiful. And that, for me, was the real appeal of it. I, I wasn't quite as, as engaged with the creative storyline as you were, but the actual act of watching it was incredibly rewarding. I'm reminded of how much you love Ratatouille uh, because of Rami's synesthesia being visualised on screen. Mm, yes. Which is when he tastes something, you can see it in visual effects and sound. Mm, absolutely. There are various relationships throughout the film. There's kind of, there's kind of a bit of high school, uh, I like you, yeah, well, I like you, uh, and, and, and sort of backing and forthing, and, and it f seems to f fall by the wayside as the deeper relationships start to take hold. There is a cat statue that is a major load-bearing prop in this film that uh, connects back to an old man's story of something that happened to him in his youth, which I actually won't go into in this one because it's a lovely kind of reveal near the end and it again adds to that sense of yearning and that sense of the this only lasts a short while and has to be savored while you have it and we only saw the Japanese version but apparently in the American version when this cat statue comes to life in her fantasies he's voiced by Carrie Elwes who is also in Pompoko and uh, comes back in, in later films and you want to get a charming cat right there in a suit then that, that is your Carrie Elwes cat. But I think the, the centerpiece of the movie is when she's become entwined with a young lad named Seiji who is really into the idea of crafting violins and it's got that romantic drama uh, aspect of I'm going to go away to a whole other country and so it's kind of a let's make the most of, uh, of what the time we have while we can but at one point she 
he coaxes her into singing her Country Roads song for him. And she starts singing it, and it's really noteworthy that she's not particularly fantastic at singing. She's not an opera singer, and I've just been playing Final Fantasy VI, and there is an opera scene in that, where in later versions, they, you know, when they went beyond the capabilities of the Super Nintendo, the opera, when voiced, is not a professional opera singer. But she's singing from the heart, and he joins her in a duet by starting to play the violin, and this song escalates and, and, and continues. And then his guardian turns up with his friends, and they just see these kids singing and playing, and rather than saying a word, they sit down, they take out their instruments, and they start accompanying them. And it is absolute cinematic magic. It is a delicacy and a passion which eludes the, the, the earlier ones in this podcast that we were talking about. Uh, potentially Ghibli at its best but again there's a realism in the fact that she doesn't just immediately start belting it out and she sings like Susan Boyle and it's not about you have this insane talent you can't let it go to waste it's more about 
her deciding what to do with her time and the two of them deciding to, uh, what to do with their time. This is, again, something I will not exactly talk about the, uh, the exact end events because ultimately it doesn't matter because they are reinforcements and revivifying of the themes that have been running throughout the film. And there is a real tinge of sadness to this. Like, the whole, the whole film is bittersweet, but... Yoshifuma Kondo, the director that I mentioned before, worked his ass off to get this film as fantastic as it was. And then immediately went into working on Princess Mononoke as uh, one of the key animators, I believe. Um, he didn't rest in between. And shortly after Princess Mononoke was released in 1998, he died, aged 47, which is ridiculously young. And uh, I, saw, I saw a video, I think it was the same video, uh, was addressing this fact. There is a serious overwork problem in Japan and very specifically the animation industry where it's kind of that, uh, in England we'd call it the northern work ethic where if you're not working you're not worth anything. Uh, and in America it's exemplified by that boss played by Kathy Bates in The Office who's, uh, you know, it's, it's eight o'clock and it's well past going home time and Michael... I think, I don't know if it's Michael, maybe Jim, sidles into the room and says, uh, it must be Jim because Michael has gone at this point. They're trying to replace Michael. Uh, you know, it's it's really late. Um, can we go home? And she says, well, you know, if, if you think you've done your absolute best with the day, you can go home. I'm going to be staying, Jim. And that is deadly. Provably deadly. Overwork kills people. Kiki's delivery service is about burnout and Ghibli didn't learn from that. And this really hit Hayao Miyazaki hard. I feel like this was one of the darkest times for Ghibli because behind the scenes things were going on creatively that led to death that could have been prevented it required them to stop and self-examine. It didn't send a rippling effect throughout the industry and have people band together and go, no, we have to have set hours, we have to treat our animators kindly. The overwork continues to this day. This was in the mid-90s. So the film is magnificent. It's not peak Ghibli, but as for a first-timer and an only-timer, I consider it to be a low-key triumph that was too much of a price to pay. on The Time of Cherries from Porco Rosso. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And I'd, I'd rather, rather be a pig than, than a fascist. fascist.
Anne chantera le temps de cerises Et guerre au Seigneur Et mère le moqueur Seront tous en fête Les belles auront la folie en tête Et les amoureux Le temps des cerises Chiflera bien mieux Le merle Mais il est bien court Le temps des cerises Où l'on s'en va doux Qu'ayront C'est de ce temps-là que je garde au cœur 